Show number 12, finally, of I Read Comics. Sorry, everybody, I have been sick like a frickin' dog, but I'm better now, and there's a good show for you. So, let's get on with it. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Thank you to everybody who sent me email saying that pretty much this was the least depressing podcast in podcasting. Because I kind of knew that, but it's nice to hear it from you guys, too. I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk about this time, and let's just jump right in. The first thing on my list was something I didn't even think I was going to have. It was loaned to me by my geek friend, Logan, and it's a book that's called How to Be a Superhero. It's a trade paperback published by Penguin, and the credit on the front says it's by Dr. Metropolis. Obviously, there isn't really a Dr. Metropolis. I think it's actually by a guy named Barry Neville, because that's who the copyright belongs to. This book is so funny. I encourage everybody to run right out and get one. I'll put the link into Amazon. Um, I saw at Amazon they have lots and lots of used copies for as little as a buck. And it's well worth it for a dollar, even when you have to pay more shipping. Buy more. Give them to your friends as gifts. That's what I'm going to do. The subtitle is Your Complete Guide to Finding a Secret Headquarters, Hiring a Sidekick, Thwarting the Forces of Evil, and much more. It's a self-actualization book for superheroes, and it's so, so funny. I want to read a few excerpts from it because he writes really, really well, and so I want to give you a flavor for what this is. How can you not love a book when this is the opening sentence in the introduction? Each year, thanks to freak industrial accidents and top-secret experiments, thousands of people all over the world receive exciting new powers, superpowers. At the same time, however, they get little or no guidance in how to use these special abilities to become superheroes. If you believe you're one of these people, then this book is for you. And really, who isn't a superhero at heart? In fact, I was reading this book on the train into work. And the woman next to me was chatting away to her friend and suddenly looked over to see what I was reading and just turned to me and said, do you want to be a superhero? And what I should have said to her, of course, was I am a superhero, but I didn't have the presence of mind. And besides, you know, you can't just go telling people on the train that you're a superhero. And I said, no, it's just a really funny book. And and she laughed. But how odd that she should turn and say that to me. By the way, I do have a superpower, and this is confirmed as of even yesterday. My superpower is that I can fix a computer by just walking over to it and sort of hovering around it. Um, that's what I do at work. When somebody has a computer problem, they call me over, and I just stand there, and the problem fixes itself. It's a really cool superpower to have. I really enjoy it. So here are some interesting questions from the superhero aptitude test. So this is how to figure out if, in fact, you are a superhero. And the questions range from things like, I have the ability to fly. And then you have to indicate if you strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, no opinion, somewhat agree, or strongly agree. Um, Other questions like, I have fallen into a vat of chemical X in the past three months, agree or not. I come from a faraway planet that orbits a red sun. 
Um, another question. When I grow angry, I tend to become a kind of emerald-hued man-child with fantastic strength and a proclivity for flattening buildings, smashing cars, and generally disturbing the peace, and yet I never seem to harm anyone. Uh, or how about, I frequently find that I can move objects, such as the state of Nebraska, with my mind. Or even a question like this. I enjoy wearing tight, revealing clothes. The best part about this book is that the guy who wrote it is clearly a huge comics fan, and just about every paragraph has a joke in it, if you are at all familiar with the world of comics. There are X-Men jokes, there are um, Superman jokes, lots of Batman jokes. There are even Watchmen jokes in here, I think. Um, they're very subtle, but they're here. And the, the whole thing just gets crazier and crazier. The funniest thing about it is that it even gets... Um, a little subversive toward the end, so I'll get to that part in a second. There are It's divided into chapters about uh, things that you will need to do for setting up yourself as a superhero. So it's how to figure out what your superpowers are, then it's how to choose your costume, um, then it goes into how to choose your, your headquarters because, you know, you're a superhero, you need to have a headquarters and there's even a little section on how to modify your own home, kind of a Home Depot project to turn it into a superhero headquarters, which is uh, pretty useful. Then there's a section on choosing the right arch enemy and that section is pretty long. Um, what it's like is a dating guide, which I thought was really, really interesting. So uh, he goes into some detail. Um, it says, uh, well, here's the first couple of sentences. There comes a time in every superhero's life when you wake up and realize that something's missing. All of a sudden, the things you'd found so fulfilling, pummeling supervillains, participating in secret wars, sacrificing your life to save the universe aren't enough. It's as if one day you looked around and it seemed that everyone but you had found that special evil someone to share your life with. <laughs> so there are quizzes that you can take to figure out who's the right arch enemy for you. Um, and then <laughs> there are some other more subversive jokes in it here, like uh, a section called, What's your arch enemy IQ? So this is to help figure out um, which which kind of arch enemy will make your ideal nemesis. Um, so here's how you can pick. So you get points for each one and that helps you figure it out. Um, question, something has activated your crime sensor. You bring up the satellite malfeasance system and see that your arch enemy has A. Miniaturized the city in hopes of creating a one-of-a-kind snow globe. B. Introduced a new line of evil toys featuring exposed metal edges, choking hazards, and anthrax-flavored plush. Um, opened an evil carnival filled with man-eating rides, bloodthirsty clowns, and flavorless snow cones, or started teaching evolution again. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. If you don't think that's funny, I'm sorry. I think it's hilarious. Um, then there's a whole section about nurturing a new arch-nemesis relationship, and I actually think this counts as um, really good advice for relationships. Um, it says, let's say you're at an event, maybe a metahuman cocktail party arranged by a local superhero team and you happen to spot a yummy looking supervillain. How the heck are you supposed to get his attention, much, much less start thwarting his attempts at world domination? And the rules are, don't seem too eager. That's right, if the hotline starts flashing, take it off the hook. If your evil detecting equipment lights show up, throw an old cape over the console. Play it cool. After all, you're in no rush. You've got lots of other evildoers to thwart, right? Um, act like you're doing them a favor is rule two. And three, wait at least a day before confounding an insidious scheme, master plan, or doomsday plot. 
So I think the advice there is, you know, take it slow and don't seem too eager, which goes pretty much for any new relationship that you're starting. Um, he also has a good section about um, how to keep your your relationship with your arch enemy exciting and uh, part of that is figuring out how to express yourself to your nemesis and he thinks that written communication is good uh, this section is called using written communication to build abhorrence so he encourages you to sit down and write a letter to your arch enemy to tell them how much you hate them and and why you guys should continue to be um, opponents for life so the, the letter that he writes <laughs> also have to say in this book the names for the enemies and the heroes that he comes up with are hilarious I can't even list them all but so he, he's writing his letter to the iron pharaoh it says dear iron pharaoh it hurts me when you try to use your tractor beam to shift the moon's orbit and swamp North America it makes me angry that every time I spare your life you just turn around and infect me with an alien parasite I wish you could see how you disappoint me when you turn your earthquake ray down on downtown Apex City. I am sad that deep down you're nothing but a homicidal maniac. I'm embarrassed that I seem unable to kill you. The world would be a better place without you. And I can't believe that any you thought anyone would believe that evil clone was really me. Finally, yes, I am still furious that you tried to brainwash my own sidekick and have him kill me. Yours truly, Dr. Metropolis. P.S. You suck. <laughs> And that could serve as a letter that you could send to anyone that you're having an argument with, pretty much. Uh, the P.S. you suck is definitely the best part. And then the very last chapter, it's the bonus chapter, and it's how to figure out if maybe you're not a superhero, but you have powers, so maybe you're evil, and it's all about evil. And he really, the writing is really vivid, and you get the sense that Dr. Metropolis maybe is evil underneath all this. But the way he frames it, it's all about coming out. There's a section called what to expect when coming out to your teammates. It says when revealing your evil nature to the other members of your superheroic team, it's important to remember that deep down your colleagues and su supervisors really just want to do what's best for you. And he goes through all of these reactions that they might have, like crying and sobbing, accusing you of doing this to hurt them, guilt, did we make you like this, insisting that evil is a choice, and promising to help you change back into being good. Oh man, that could have been just lifted from any book about coming out, and it's really, really good. So it's a little book, it's about 200 pages, like I said, you can get it on Amazon, and I just think it's it's so very funny. Um, go out and order one, and then, you know, you can figure out if you really are a superhero, and this book will help you get started. somebody tell me why Brian Michael Bendis doesn't draw anymore or very little I really want to know because I'm I've just got done reading one of his graphic novels I, I had talked about fortune and glory once before and the one I have now is called torso a true tri true crime graphic novel and it's uh, he did the art he also did some of the writing with Mark Andreco it is so good and the style is so singular it's unique it's wonderful and it's totally suited to the subject matter that's in here. Why the hell doesn't he do more stuff like this? I don't know. I guess uh, he's involved in his own Marvel Universe now. But I wanted to spend some time talking about this because um, if, if you don't, if you only know him from his Marvel stuff, this is really different. And if you like true crime, 
you will definitely like this. A lot of people recommended this to me after I talked about Fortune and Glory, and just from the little excerpts that I saw in um, in several places online, I kind of thought that I would like it, and it is just great. Quick synopsis is that it's it says based on a true story, and I would actually like to know how much of this is true and how much they made up for the purposes of the story, and I, I really couldn't find any of that information online. Um, as a quick tangent, I he said in Fortune and Glory that this is supposed to be made into a movie and um, I assume it is still going to be made into a movie. I checked over at the Bendis boards and a couple people had posted asking when is this going to come out or what's going on with the movie and there doesn't seem to be a response so who knows what's happening with it. But um, it's the story of murders that took place in Cleveland in the late 30s and they were being investigated by Elliot Ness who had just gotten done uh, cleaning up Chicago and putting Al Capone in jail, sort of. And then he came to Cleveland and he was appointed the safety director, which seems like a really strange title to me. I don't quite know what that means. He wasn't the chief of police. He was just this guy who was the safety director. And these murders were happening um, over a fairly short period of time. And they're very gruesome, people being hacked up and these body parts turning up all over the city. And uh, there was a lot of pressure on him to solve it because people were terrified. So I don't want to tell tell you too much about the rest of the plot because... It sounds like a straight-ahead crime story, and it's not. It was weird in a lot of ways. And the way that they tell the story is really, really wonderful. So here are the things about the art that I thought were just amazing. First of all, it's black and white. And when I say it's black and white, it's like 70% black, (laughs) and the rest of it is white. It is really black. There is a ton of black being used here. It's so suited to the subject matter because you get the feel for what Cleveland was probably like back then. It was the end of the Depression. Um, One of the important features of the story was that there was a shanty town in Cleveland right by the shores of the lake where people had come thinking that they could get a job and there weren't enough jobs to support these hundreds of people who had come. So they were really living in squalor. Um, There was hardly any food and there were no jobs and there was nothing to do but drink illegal alcohol because prohibition was still in effect. So it's so it's depressing but it's not depressing in the way that it's it's not gothic depressing it's just reality it's very very gritty and gritty is a word that gets overused a lot but I think it absolutely applies here Um, the the art is I want to say minimalist which is not to say that there isn't detail but the strokes that he uses to draw the people and the backgrounds are very very broad Um, it's almost like cutouts I was trying to think of the the way to do it. There are even sections that are like uh, shadow puppet shows, if you've ever seen them, where the puppets um, are cut out and they're usually fairly detailed and you you watch the shadows. And that's what a lot of this looks like. It's a, it's a, a shadow show. And the people do look like puppets. Partly they look like puppets because... Um, the technique he uses is to use the same image from panel to panel. The panels are all over the place. Some of them are a full page. They're, some of them are sideways, so you actually have to turn the book to hold it horizontally to read what's going on. Um, sometimes there are like 36 little tiny panels on a whole page, so that is great. Every page is different. Every single page is different. But the the drawings are often the same from panel to panel, and only the word balloons change. Sometimes he'll change the eyes or a little detail around him. And what's so fascinating about this, other people have used this technique too. If there's a name for it, I don't know what it is, but I'd love to know. So if you know, tell me what it is. Um, is that 
the expression on the person's face seems to change depending on what they're saying even though you know it's exactly the same picture so you read the the word balloon in one section and you you think oh they look angry then you read the caption in the next one the word balloon and you think oh now they look sad but it's the same picture it's exactly the same picture and it's a real lesson in how you perceive something based on the context that it's in and I just love that and he does that over and over again there are some pages that have photo collage in them and that he's taken a real photograph and used it as a background for it and um, there are some pictures in the back and you can see where he's actually done a drawing very much based on it not a tracing but just a um, a fairly realistic rendering of an actual photograph and he uses a lot of the same images from uh, chapter to chapter and it's it's just amazing how different they can look in a, in a different context um, and Elliot Ness himself is something of a mystery and I, I think he really was a mystery in life nobody knew him that well he died pretty young before he became the untouchable and um, he certainly isn't Kevin Costner in this book uh, if you saw that movie, I don't know who didn't see that movie because it was brilliant, but he's a very different sort of guy. His wife leaves him at some point because he's so devoted to what he's doing, and that doesn't really seem unusual given what was going on at the time. Um, the story itself focuses on two detectives who were investigating this and their relationship with each other and their relationship to the case which was very complicated it was a very disturbing case in a number of ways and uh, I know from Fortune and Glory that the case officially was never solved but in going through all of the evidence which was not easy for them to get hold of because the official case files seem to have disappeared from Cleveland um, there were some clues as to who it might be and they give their idea of who it was at the end which wraps it up pretty nicely um, haven't read anything about uh, other people's theories about it you know it's not one of those Jack the Ripper cases where there are a ton of books and everybody has their own theories about who actually did this but if what they found is true I would say that their conclusion seems pretty realistic um, it's a creepy book I was reading this on the train as well and boy let me tell you it's pretty hard to read a book like this on a train when it's black and white it's very stark people are kind of looking over your shoulder and there are these drawings of you know decapitated bodies and blood I mean there's not really blood it's black and white blood but it, it's still pretty scary and I felt a little uncomfortable reading it on the train but there you go you know that's when I get to read my comics it's full of tension it's full of amazing dialogue which I'm attributing to Mark Andreco. Um, it it's so realistic it really seems like that's the way people talk everybody has a different style of talking there's a lot of late 30s slang thrown in which is good and you probably are familiar with some of that if you um, you know watch old movies on TV and have seen my girl Friday things like that and there's a lot of really really scary stuff in it um, I think it's a, a wonderful wonderful book it's no surprise that it's it would be made into a movie it it reads a little bit like a movie in that it moves very quickly it has a beginning a middle and an end and it has a climax that you can sense is, is coming so it's constructed very much like a movie there are parts of it though I don't see how they're gonna translate this into a movie because it's done so well on the page there are just sections of it where things are juxtaposed where there's a transition from one location to another via a sound effect that occurs in one place and another place an image that is in one place and then the next location and uh, I don't know how they're gonna do it I, I really look forward to seeing it um, 
I, I think this is going to make an excellent movie. I'm pretty sure that Bendis and Andreco are, are still involved in the scripting, which will be good and means that it won't turn into something stupid. Um, but it's definitely not going to be like the other Untouchables movie, even though it's about Elliot Ness. So um, one more really good thing that I recommend. I know that um, Bendis did this other series called Jinx, which I, I think I would like to get hold of as well. Even though it's not true crime, it's still crime. Um, but yeah, Torso, really, really good. If you haven't read it already, I would say you should go out and get it, but um, probably don't read it on the train. I wouldn't recommend that. All right, the gay porn section. This is not the gay porn manga section. It's just the plain gay porn section. The book I want to talk about right now, briefly, but talk about it, is um, a trade, and it's not a trade paperback. It's a paperback called True Adult Fantasy, and the one that I have is number two, and it's written and drawn by a guy named Brad Rader, Bradley Rader, also known as the Flaming Artist, which I think is just a, a wonderful sort of superhero type name. You might know Brad Rader because he has drawn regular mainstream comics. In fact, for a long time, he drew Catwoman, and he's also done Batman Adventures. I think he was also involved a little bit in the animation for Batman as well. So he is a guy who's done a lot of comics. What he's also been doing, I don't want to say on the side, but what his, his true labor, labor of love is drawing gay porn. And the volume that I have here, True Adult Fantasy, has... Um, a story in it that's broken into two parts and then it has a lot of one-pagers pretty much of naked gay men. So I wanted to read something from the introduction to it. Um, this is his introduction to the book and it's called Sexual Mentoring and it says, Ed Asner was my first love. In fact, he helped me realize that I, a terminally horny 14-year-old in 1974, was sexually attracted to men. I would fantasize about Lou Grant fucking Mary Richards, soon discovering that, if I replaced her with myself, my daily masturbation sessions become much more efficacious. And that's Brad. He's such a funny guy. I also want to say I've met him at a couple of different events. I think I met him at Ape twice and maybe at Comic-Con as well. And he's the sweetest guy ever. Um, and he has been really, really nice to all of the fans who come up and talk to him. So 
the art that's in true adult fantasy is all black and white, and he shows a number of different styles here, from some really crude pencil drawings that are kind of half done to some other things that have a lot of really elaborate cross-hatching and um, inking detail work in them. The thing that, that makes Brad's work special in the context of gay porn is that um, the guys that he draws... They're real-looking guys, and he even says that in uh, kind of the introduction to his website, which I'm going to put up a link for. He says, full-grown men are sexy. Real men have real bodies with real hair and real everything else. This is for you. Um, And a lot of the gay porn that I look at, and of course this is especially true of the manga where you don't even see actual dicks that are in there is that the men are very very idealized they're really beautiful they're always really muscular they're not fat they have no body hair whatsoever it seems like and the kind of guys that brad draws are real looking guys now a lot of them look like ed asner so if you are really into ed asner this will probably be really fun for you but it's kind of interesting to look at it too to see guys who are overweight or guys who have beards or um guys who have mustaches and are bald there's all kinds of different guys in here they look like real guys and they look sexy as real guys he has a way of taking any guy any body type guy no matter what he looks like not even a good looking guy and putting him on the page and making him look really sexy so you have to give him a lot of credit for being able to do that and it's in a style that's very natural and you can tell that um, he's really appreciating the forms that he's drawing the physical forms Um, and a lot of the shots are I call them shots because they are actually like a photograph where someone's looking at the artist and the expressions on the guy's faces are kind of interesting too some of them are um, a little coy and some of them are much more aggressive and it's it's nice that he can put that much detail into these um, tossed off drawings so I really like what Brad has to do um I was trying to think of how to talk about the story that's in here. This is actually part two of a story he started in uh, the True Adult Fantasy number one book. And it's <laughs> it's the story of two truckers, and one of them wakes up one day with a vagina. And then the story is what happens afterwards. And there's a lot of sex in it, including in this part, um, a woman who has a dick. So that's, well, she's not a woman. I guess she's a hermaphrodite. Anyway, um it's kind of interesting and he says at the end that there's going to be a part three and I don't think that true adult fantasy number three is out yet but I'm kind of interested to see where it's going and there's some good fight scenes in there too of course there has to be a fight so um, that's true adult fantasy I think it's really cool that Brad is doing something like this and putting it out and putting it out in um, a very above ground way I've seen this book listed in a lot of different sites it's not like you have to go to the dirty bookstore to buy it and the cover is kind of neat you know it's um, bright blue and it has a, a picture of a guy who's again looking at the artist he's not a naked guy well he's naked from the waist up and he's kind of got this amused look on his face but it seems like a thing that you would just find on the shelf somewhere. It's it's not icky. It's really nice. Brad has a great website, and you can go and look at a lot of samples of what he's done. Some of the illustrations that are in this book are also available on his website. So I would like to say yay for Brad Rader and true adult fantasy.
So, speaking of guys like Ed Asner, let's talk about Jack Kirby. No, 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 not in a sexual way. I don't mean that. Um, I'm a real Jack Kirby fan, and that's probably because I grew up reading a lot of Marvel comics that were drawn by Jack Kirby, and then um, started to read some of the stuff he did for DC and it was crazy. I mean, if you've read any of the New Gods or the Mr. Miracle stuff, visually incredible, plot-wise, really impossible to follow. But that's just the way he was. And I think a lot of that is more fuel for the argument that the things that he did at Marvel really were in partnership with Stanley. It wasn't all Jack Kirby. Stanley was the plotter and the scriptwriter. I don't want to have that argument right now, but that's what I think. I wanted to talk, though, about this one particular issue of New Gods, because I think that the art in here is some of the best art that he's done. And this is one of the comics that he wrote early in the New Gods run that was really good. It had a really good script. It was very compact and focused and had a lot of really good dialogue and description of what was going on. And I I even want to read a little bit of it. This particular issue was discussed at length in an article that was in the Comics Journal, which was later collected into one of the Comics Journal library issues about Kirby, and it was written by a guy named Earl Wells, and this essay happened to be called Once and for All, Who is the Author of Marvel? And he actually uses this issue of New Gods to make some arguments about how the stuff that Kirby did for DC was really different from what he had done for Marvel, and I I think this is a, a good example of it. I will recap the plot a little bit, not to give you the whole history and new gods and everything, but in this particular, um, I wanted to say episode, but this particular issue, um, it's Orion and Light Ray, two of the new gods from New Genesis, versus some of the bad guys. So um, it takes place on the water, and it involves some humans. Some of the plots didn't always involve humans, but this one in particular does. So... um, we open in the beginning with um, the Deep Six, who are the mystic mutators of the deep, have brought forth this really horrible uh, living boat thing that destroys the ships, and we come in on this after it's destroyed this private yacht, and there are some humans that are floating there, and Orion shows up, because in the previous issue, he had killed one of the other Deep Six named Slick, so he's come to kill the rest of them. So he finds these humans, and he tries to take them to a little bit of safety and he runs into Light Ray and um, turns out that Light Ray is on this floating wooden thing that has a a horrible creature in it which is the brain of the the evil boat that the Deep Six have and the boat is called Leviathan. Good name, huh? So they decide to do something about this and Light Ray uses his powers not to destroy the thing, this weird amphibian-like creature, really horrible looking, that's controlling the Leviathan, but he changes it into something else, and we don't find out till the end of the issue what it is he changes it into. So uh, as he's changing it, it starts to send out this call, which will make the what's left of the Deep Six come to them, and they're going to have this big fight. Meanwhile, with the humans, he set up some other conflict because it's a, a man and his son and daughter, and the man is a World War II veteran, and he's very much fight guy, kind of like Orion, and his son is more of a pacifist. I don't want to say kind of like Light Ray, but he thinks more than he acts, which is a little bit like Light Ray, and it's very clear throughout this that Light Ray is the one who's planning what's going to go on, and Orion even says that to the end. He says, you don't fight like a warrior, you fight like a planner, and uh, he says, Light Ray says, yeah, and I'm the one who brought the enemy to us, so why don't you just shut up and do what I'm telling you for a change instead of just reacting and fighting. 
So all this is going on. The humans are fighting. And meanwhile, um, the rest of the Deep Six show up. Um, Jafar is the first one who comes and he jumps up while uh, Orion and Light Ray are out looking for the rest of them and he grabs the pacifist son and in this very effective panel it happens really quickly he grabs his head and squeezes it kills him and turns his head into this chrome-plated faceless mannequin looking thing a little bit like silver surfer gotta say a little bit like silver surfer so he's dead and then orion shows up and they have a big fight and orion kills jafar and they they do battle with the the rest of the guys and uh, i don't think they kill them all but they they kick their asses pretty well um and before i tell you what happens at the climax i I do want to say one of the reasons this is so good is that it's a really fast-paced issue in some of the other new gods there were places where nothing was happening like people were talking about stuff and you didn't know what it was like who are these people what are they doing but in this one it is like action from the first panel of the first page to the last panel of the last page it just moves along and there is all of this amazing Kirby action with figures that are flying lengthwise in front of you and you can just feel what's going on in it It, it's so good um so the two panels that I particularly wanted to talk about, which I've scanned and I have up at my blog at ireadcomics.blogspot.com, um, it's not quite a two-page spread. It's two two pages right next to each other, and each page is a page unto itself, so you're not meant to read it across, but they are next to each other. It's really important that they're next to each other. So on the left, you have a picture of... Um, the rest of the Deep Six with the Leviathan, which is sort of this weird pinky, reddy, magenta-y color, and it's rising up out of the ocean, although you'd hardly know it. It looks like it's suspended in space because of all the light that's coming around it. And on the facing page, on the right page, you have Light Ray and Orion and um, the dead guy on their, um, their weapon. The thing that Orion had transformed from the horrible amphibian creature has now become what they're calling the glory boat, and it's now this hugely powerful missile, and they're riding on top of it. And in these two panels, you just see such an amazing amount of energy and aggression and movement one of the things I love about Jack Kirby as an artist, and I have to say I don't see this in a lot of current artists, in some, but not in a lot of them, is that when he is doing these kinds of panels, his style is um, active to the point of being aggressive, to being like you look at it and it kind of jumps off the page and it almost overwhelms you, which I don't think you really see in a lot of art these days. It doesn't slap you upside the head the way these panels do. It's over the top, but it's meant to be over the top because we're dealing with aliens from other planets or other dimensions and they're fighting each other to the death. So the art perfectly works with what the storyline is supposed to be here. There are no humans here. These are, well, except for the dead guy. But they're just so amazing. I've been looking at these panels over and over and I just love everything about them. You know, it's classic Kirby. There's a giant monster with impossible huge horns and fangs coming off of it and a great big malevolent eye and the the green um, gnarly 
deep six guys and then on the facing page you know uh, the forces of goodness there's orion and light ray and they're all glistening and and um, looking big and muscular and then there's the wonderful kirby machinery which looks like nothing else which has all of the the action lines drawn on it and this um, smoke this weird green smoke with the black dots in it rising off of it it's just so cool. It looks like it's just going to jump out of this page. So I wanted to read what it says on those two pages. So uh, on the page with the evil guys, it says, The sight of the enemy is an apocalyptic vision of terrifying dimension. Their fury is focused on the ugly little wooden hulk from which emanates the Lorelei sound. Smash it, destroy it, leave no sign of its existence. It is the will of merciless gods. And, uh, one of the deep six says, Arrogant pygmies die in the name of Darkseid and Apocalypse. So on the other side, it says, And as if in answer to its attacker, the wooden ship blasts open, and something inside rushes out into the calamitous night, singing and shining and sleek and deadly. What Light Ray has imprinted on the life cube is now fully grown, and it carries on its glistening warhead the living, the dead, and the fiery trumpets of the Source. And at the top, Light Ray says, If we must die, let new Genesis live. And Orion says, If we go to the Source, you demons go with us. And those two things that they say so capture their characters. Orion is the one who's saying, If we're going to die, we're taking you guys down with us. And Light Ray is the one who's saying, if we have to die, we want New Genesis to live. He's not even thinking about the bad guys at this point. He's just saying, we're prepared to make this sacrifice. It's not about revenge or retribution or anything. And then on on the next page is the actual explosion, which is one panel of four, or three actually, on this page. And it's a big red explosion, but it's so it's almost anticlimactic over those two pages that you've just seen. The description is almost a little silly. It says, The trumpets blast on impact with the enemy, thunderous notes, white-hot, elemental, and all-consuming, a Wagnerian offering to the source. So you really get that the climax of it is not the explosion, it's the build-up to the explosion, where he's got these two panels right next to each other, where these guys are are about to blow each other to kingdom come. That's the the high point of the whole story, not the explosion, it's the build-up to the explosion and what that stands for. And again, you just don't see stuff like that anymore. It's always the payoff page where, you know, somebody's foot connects with somebody's head or there is the explosion. So I I love that it's different about that. Oh, and by the way, Light Ray and Orion, they don't die. Um, (laughs) And the the sun kind of gets... not resurrected, but he gets his real face back because of Light Ray's powers on the, the 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 thing that turns into the glory boat. And even the old man at the end is left alive, even though he's kind of lost it by that point. So hardly anybody dies except for the bad guys. So that that's a good thing. So I really love this, this issue of New Gods. I, I do think it's one of the best. And um, I would encourage you to check out the scans that I did. And if you ever get a chance to actually read this issue, whether uh, by itself or in one of the... I know there's a DC collection of New God stuff, I would recommend it because it is really good. And if you like Jack Kirby, even if you don't like him that much, I think this is one of the best things that he's done. So I recommend it. And uh, I'll talk about Kirby more in more episodes, but I wanted to, to alert you to one of my favorites.
realized that I mentioned Amazon before, and uh, somebody wrote me and, and said, what's up with Amazon? Why don't you like them? Well, it, it's not so much that I don't like them. It's just that they're big. They're making lots of money. I prefer to support independent booksellers whenever possible. Also, it bugged me a little bit that last year Amazon gave uh, 60% of their PAC money to the Republicans. So, you know, they can do their own thing. The reason I mention Amazon, this is what I do. And I just put it out there if you want to do it this way. I will go to Amazon and I will look in their used book listings to see what kind of prices I can get. And then rather than going through Amazon and ordering it, I'll try to contact them directly. If you click through some of the links for the sellers and a lot of the sellers rather than being individuals are actual used bookstores or, or online places um, you can often go directly to their webs websites or you can just send them email which is what I often do and say to them hey I saw this listed um, can we just buy this and you know you pay through PayPal or whatever so um, that's what I do so you can use the Amazon tools but you don't necessarily have to buy through them so that, that's my little speech about Amazon. And yes, I do use Amazon sometimes when I just don't have the time to do that or they happen to have something there that I can't get anywhere else. Um, I generally don't pre-order through them. I try to buy uh, comic books and trade paperbacks through either Discount Comic Book Service or In Stock Trades or um, DVDs I get through Deep discount DVD because they have really good prices. Uh, even though they don't always have things in stock, I like their prices better. So that's my little thing about Amazon. Um, to wrap this up, I wanted to tell everybody about a, a great thing that I found online after many years. And this was something that I had gotten off the internet probably 10 years ago, 1995. And it was a text list, an ASCII list that I got from some news group that I was perusing and it's called the top 100 things I'd do if I ever became an evil overlord and I think it was on one of the Star Trek groups that I was on at the time on Usenet way back when and I just thought it was the funniest thing and I printed it out and I have this dog-eared copy that I've just had for 10 years and recently I thought I wonder if it's online anywhere else and lo and behold it's now on its own site called eviloverlord.com and it has this this wonderful list it's just so funny it relates to so many things all of the cliches that you've ever seen on shows like Star Trek or any other sci-fi show or even um, not sci-fi but shows that feature uh, really evil despicable characters and just about every comic book that ever was that has an evil guy in it and you know, it just leaps right in there with the, the first thing that you would do if you were an evil overlord. Number one, my legions of terror will have helmets with clear plexiglass visors, not face concealing ones. Hey, who would have thought? Number two, my ventilation ducts will be too small to crawl through. It's just everything that you've ever seen, and some of them are just killingly funny. Um, number four, shooting is not too good for my enemies. You know, isn't that what you would think? Um, Number six, I will not gloat over my enemy's predicament before killing them. It's it's just the funniest thing, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So um, putting the link in, you can go read through it. it. It's really good, and it will make you laugh and laugh and laugh. Um, so coming up next time, oh, oh, I wanted to, to tell you guys that there was something on the Cartoon Network last night that I watched, which was called Scary Godmother 2. Uh, there was a Scary Godmother 1. It was on last year, and this is Scary Godmother 2. 
It's one of their Halloween specials. I watched it and it was pretty good. I really liked it. Um, the reason I'm mentioning it now is because it's on all through the month of October and I think I'm going to have an interview lined up with the creator, Jill Thompson, to talk about how she came to do this. She's a comic book artist who has done uh, work for DC and Marvel, among others, and she has her own line of books out. And I'm really looking forward to talking to her. I think it'll be good. So uh, if you happen to catch Scary Godmother 2, you will definitely enjoy it. It's good. It's... um. It's for kids. There's some really good positive messages in it, but it's also got a lot of adult humor in it that I think is good. And tomorrow I'm going to see the new Wallace and Gromit movie, which I'm very excited about. It's called Curse of the Were-Rabbit. And one of the things on my wish list at Deep DVD is the whole Wallace and Gromit collection. And I think I might actually have to go and, uh, you know, spend a little money on it because Wallace and Gromit are really good. So until next time, um, watch more cartoons on TV because they're always good. Oh, and, and I just got the Japanese lyrics to Teen Titans theme song by the insane Japanese pop stars Puffy Amiyumi. Um, if anybody knows if the English lyrics are actually a translation of the Japanese lyrics, I want to know because I'm feeling like I'm going to have to go and translate the Japanese lyrics, which is going to take me a really long time because my Japanese sucks. I haven't used it in so long. But um, I'd like to know if it's a real translation or not. And on that note, I think I'm going to play a little bit of the Teen Titans song in Japanese for you all to enjoy. So, see you next time.